So competition, it's fierce. Just because a, a brand is smaller than you doesn't mean that they can't compete with you. It's mm -hmm. not about size anymore. It's about agility. And what one person can build and do today is incredible with the right tools. And so it's something to think about. Looking at the landscape of innovation and looking what right now might be cutting edge, but in the next two to three years might be considered a best practice. And if you're not doing that, you're really just missing out. Alibaba.com Sourcing Insights is the official podcast from the Alibaba.com team. Each week on the show, we bring you conversations with industry-leading experts who are using Alibaba.com to build and scale their businesses. These conversations help you explore opportunities through digital global sourcing amidst changing times and find diversified winning products and leading suppliers on Alibaba.com. Subscribe and be sure to check back for regular episodes. In today's episode of the Alibaba.com Sourcing Insights Podcast, we hear from Dylan Carter, the founder of Vendrive and co-host of the Wholesale Made Easy Podcast. In this episode, Dylan shares very practical advice for any e-commerce company that is looking to expand their business into wholesale and B2B sales. Today, we're also honored to have as our host of the episode, Kunle Campbell, who is an e-commerce advisor, international speaker, and host of the 2X e-commerce podcast. Kunle is also the co-managing partner at Octillion Capital Partners and founder at Commerce Excel. So we're very honored to have this conversation between Kunle Campbell and Dylan Carter. Hey, Dylan, for anyone in the audience who doesn't know who you are, can you give us about 60 seconds to give a brief overview of you and your company? Sure. Yeah. My name is Dylan Carter. I'm one of the co-founders of Vindrive.com. We're a B2B platform, essentially. And so what we want to do is we want to help um, brands and retailers, one, find each other. That's a very difficult thing. And we'll talk about that in the podcast, as well as really streamline their operations. There's, the, there's a whole issue of being able to make B2B transactions as easy as D2C is. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing a lot of innovation there. And so we're really taking the reins there and really trying to build a Shopify for B2B wholesale. Mm -hmm. So you're that transition point for D2C to wholesale. So if you're you're selling D2C via Shopify and you're looking to to sell to retail or actually even drop ship, they, they come to you guys to Vendrive. Exactly. You have this interesting dynamic where you have a, a brand launch and they're direct to consumer and they're doing super well. And they, they start to have the conversation of, should we go B2B? Should we wholesale and, and bulk sell our products? And then, and we can dive deeper into this, you find that there's a lot of logistics and operations and processing problems and pricing problems. And we can definitely talk about pricing as well because mm -hmm. um, that's its own kind of gigantic beast. But <laughs> a lot of brands are not prepared because they treat it like direct to consumer. And it's far less transactional than that. It's very much uh, relationship-based. And so really what the Vendrive platform is designed to be is the central place to basically run your wholesale arm for your business. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So if you're, you were talking to an e-commerce company who's been selling direct to consumer, what advice would you give them? What sort of pillars would you give them for their readiness into wholesale from the hundreds of probably thousands of businesses you guys are, have worked with Vendrive? Yeah, so there's three major things that stand out immediately. One, pricing. Uh, a lot of brands get this wrong, and it's understandable because there's so many different ways to approach pricing, and we can deep dive into that as well. Number two is systems, right? The logistics of it, and I don't just mean logistics as in the shipping and the inventory. That's certainly a part of it. Like the sourcing aspect becomes a problem as well, especially as you begin to grow massive wholesale accounts. Mm -hmm. um, but the internal processes, how do you keep up with the demand? How do you have 
the notes in place, so to speak, to know who gets what pricing, making sure that nothing is left behind because this becomes very important when you have net terms, when you're doing million dollar deals, you got to be on top of your game, right? And so mm. to have the systems in place to be able to scale that immediately is very important. Number three is really being able to find retailers. There's this interesting gap where you're, you have a brand, you're direct to consumer, you're well known to your audience and your industry, but you might not be as well known in the B2B space, right? Mm -hmm. You might not have been um, looked upon in that way, I guess you can say. So a lot of your retailers will start to look at, okay, what are the trends? What brands am I seeing in other locations that we should start having conversations about, but you're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. And so you need a method to go find these retailers to start these conversations and to build these relationships. The difficult part there is a lot of your retailers, especially your more independent ones, don't have websites. So yeah, it's very difficult to know how do you find them? And we can deep dive into that, into all three of these, of course, because there's a lot mm -hmm. to uncover here and, and we're actually mm -hmm. not even going to have the time to cover everything involved, but I'll try to hit the major things there. But yeah, so that's the top three things. So your pricing strategy, your systems, how you're going to operate the actual arm of the business, and then how are you actually growing the sales themselves? How are you finding mm -hmm. retailers to work with? Interesting. Pricing systems and finding retailers. Does VenDrive cut across all three um, pillars? We do, exactly. So what awesome. we want to do, so on the pricing side, we're, we're not necessarily prescribing how to do it, but we are making it easier in the sense of, as you start to grow, you're going to you're gonna have to negotiate with larger retailers. They're going to get different pricing than a run-of-the-mill retailer, an independent retailer would, just based on the sheer volume that they're commanding and demanding. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, you can have volume-based pricing, and that's fantastic, but a lot of times they're going to come in and say, hey, we're a regional brand, we're gonna, or I'm sorry, we're a regional retailer. We're going to have you in 13 stores. We need a different rate. And... One of the things you want to be able to do is reduce the friction for a retailer placing an order with you, whether they're small or large, it really doesn't matter because it's the same effort in my opinion. And so your retailers really should see pricing specific to them. So a lot of the brands we've talked to when we start to dive deeper into how they operate the pricing side, we end up finding that a lot of times it's just written down on a sticky note somewhere hmm. or in some file. And so the problem there is the scalability of that, right? What if the person who remembers that that note is there is out sick that day and a order comes through and it looks like a normal order, right? Because they're just saying, I want 500 units at $12 a piece. And they just know that you're going to send them back an invoice with the discount applied, but you don't do that because you didn't know. That becomes hmm. a problem, right? Now you're potentially risking the relationship itself. And although it's a, it's a potentially minor thing, the impact is major. We're designing it so that each retailer only sees pricing specific to them. So there is no confusion. There is no, I need to remember, or, Hey, Dave said this, or Sarah said that it's just, it's good to go. And once you can have less of that back and forth, it makes it easier. Again, reducing the friction for a retailer to place an order. It, mm -hmm. And that's for us, a big pillar, right? We want to make the B2B transaction as easy as a direct-to-consumer transaction. Why? It reduces the workload for both parties to free up the time to go deeper into the relationship itself. And that's very important. Yeah. The the money aside, let's dig into the relationship. And, and I yeah. guess this is another way of like personalized pricing at a B2B, given the fact that you have different pricing strategies for different deals you may have brokered in the past. Okay, that, that's a very interesting insight into pricing. Let's jump into systems, selling D2C through wholesale. 
selling D2C and wholesale are two different things. Yeah. What do you see most brands doing when it comes to systems for wholesale? What works and what doesn't? Yeah, so th there's a few pitfalls that we, we tend to see and, and we've heard of as well in having one-on-one -on -one conversations with a bunch of brands. One is they get that first massive wholesale order and they're super excited and then they realize they can't fulfill it. It's just, it's impossible. You got to consider the difference in the the average sell-through rate for your direct-to-consumer inventory versus a wholesale-based inventory. And I'm not saying here that you should have them necessarily split into two different inventories, although that's an option. Some people decide to keep them just put together. If you're using a third-party logistics you know, company to, to fulfill, a lot can do wholesale orders as well, but the packaging can be different if you're doing case packs, things of that nature. That becomes an exciting problem to have, but it could be detrimental again to the relationship because if you get this order and you're super excited, but you can't actually fulfill it, you now have to go back and renegotiate that order, potentially split it into multiple purchase orders or invoices. Mm -hmm. Additionally is the cash flow problem, right? So your smaller retailers really won't need net terms, but your larger ones will. It's just, it comes with the scalability of it. If you don't have the cash flow buffer, to sustain that, again, it's a potential problem. Uh, we talked with one brand, they were doing super well with wholesale, mainly smaller retailers, but then a very large grocery train regionally came in, placed a huge order, and they're like, hey, we need net, net 30. And she's like, wow, that's a lot for me to come up with. One, I have to go buy more inventory, right? So I gotta go back to my suppliers, purchase more, which I gotta come out of pocket for that, where, where I'm not getting net 30 or net 60 myself to offset that. Get yep. that in, ship it over, hold the cash flow myself. As a smaller business attempting to grow your operations, these are things you really need to be aware of. And so if you get to a point where you're really wanting to not just experiment with B2B wholesale, but really start to grow it, you need to think through what are the potential pitfalls that you could avoid by having enough mm. buffer, meaning cash flow, meeting your actual inventory levels. And this doesn't mean jack up your inventory levels, right? It might yeah, be, true. hey, let's increase it by 10, 20, 30% with each restock with our suppliers. That way, if we do have a bump, it's not as detrimental and it's not gonna basically cause me to have to decide, do I just not allow direct to consumers to purchase for a week to to go the wholesale route or right it, it, it's it's not it's just not a win-win problem <laughs> that's mm. the issue it's just a lose-lose but you can set up your operations so that's not a problem and so this brings up a lot of a lot of decisions that need to be made early on as early as possible so we highlighted pricing a bit but there's a little bit more here how do you decide mm -hmm. what wholesale pricing to go with the typical benchmark um, for margin is 40 to 60%. So there's a decent yeah. range there. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. If when you're working on your retail-based pricing, you have your cost of goods sold from your supplier, you know what's going to cost you to manufacture this. And a lot of you know newer brands will say, hey, this is great. I'm going to you know do two and a half times, three times my COGS for my retail price, and we're good here. Maybe not. It, it really depends. So each industry can have a different benchmark for their margin. Luxury, mm -hmm. as an example, has a much higher expectation for margin going from brand to retailer. Of course, you have discounted products and brands and retailers as well. That becomes its own problem where, you know, if your cogs are too high, but you're wanting to be a cheaper option, you don't have enough margin yourself to potentially offer wholesale. So you got to think through your pricing strategy more holistically. It's not just what do I sell it for and then slash that in half. 
That doesn't necessarily work. It's a little too simplistic. But it's good to know that when you're look when you're thinking through your margins as the brand selling directly to consumer, as well as the margins you're going to be able to offer your wholesale uh, buyers to their uh, retail buyers, you need to think through all the inputs here, right? You have your cost of goods sold. Yeah. Potentially, it might not be profitable at your current production rate, but if you're able to increase the volume of production, you might be able to lower your cost of goods sold to be able to make it profitable and make it work. And if, hey, I'm, I'm doing a lot here on the sourcing side and, and by sourcing, finding retailers to work with, which we'll dive in deeper here shortly, mm -hmm. um, you can pretty much forecast that I can go ahead and bump up my inventory levels here and potentially get my cost down. Or it might mean a, a difficult decision in finding a new supplier that can produce at a much lower price point. So you don't want to just think about, okay, I need to come up with 40 to 60%, right? It's really what's involved in doing that holistically and making that work, not just for wholesale, not just for direct to consumer, but both together because you don't want to find yourself in a position where you go B2B and the volume is incredible, but you're making no money. If you're breaking even, yeah, it might be good for branding, but not that much. So we really want to think um, more deeply about this, right? You have volume-based pricing. You want enough buffer so that if a large regional national brand retailer comes in and says, hey, we want to negotiate, we can do much larger orders. If you're at the 40% benchmark, that's on the lower end. So if you go yeah. down to 35, it might not really make sense anymore. And so you need to build more buffers. Again, I'm going to come back to buffers here, yeah. but it's buffers of cash flow, buffers of inventory levels, buffers in your margins so that when you do get hit with a hardcore negotiation, you're prepared for that because you baked it into a few of your pricing assumptions. You also need to think to minimum order size, right? Uh, a wholesale order, in my opinion, is not 25 units. It's 500 <laughs> plus. And so there's a lot of brands we've talked with where they have not set this. And then they end up having, quote unquote, B2B orders come through. And they're not really wholesale orders. They're really just bulk retail orders that somebody decided, hey, I want 25 of these instead of just the one. And they get a discount. Yeah. Dylan, it's, it's a fine balance of, of cash flow, inventory, and finance, essentially, and yes. also just knowing your cogs at the top level and understanding you know, what buffer points you can accommodate for much larger orders and also supplier relationships. So again, yes. it, it just sounds to me like um, the systems tie very with your pricing and then all of that, all, all of the payment systems, your order placements and your inventory sit into the systems to, to really strengthen it from that perspective. Now, the third aspect you mentioned is finding retailers. You talked about it being the hardest part, it's difficult to find retailers, whether they're small ones, which you alluded to, given the fact that they may not even have websites. How would you sort out this pillar in, in, in really mastering um, wholesale? Yeah. So there's an interesting power dynamic that we've noticed. So if you are a small brand trying to get in with a large retailer, it's very difficult. And unfortunately, a lot of your larger retailers still operate in a, what I'm going to call an old school method, which is very much, let's jump in, in into a conference room, pitch us. And I think a lot of this is starting to go away, right? We're starting, especially with COVID, this has changed the game fundamentally for a lot of brands and how they operate. But you have certain industries where pets is a good example. Pets is an interesting industry where a lot of your retailers go through specific distributors, large distributors. So mm -hmm. if you're in pets, you need to factor that in because you're not now having a wholesale price. You're having a 
distributor price, price, which has mm -hmm. to be much lower, right? Because now you have a middleman between you and that retailer. Yeah. So as that dynamic shifts, you have a little bit more control, right? So if you're a slightly larger brand talking with a smaller retailer, you have more control, right? You have the power yeah. because they really need your products. And if it's good quality products and great brand, they're going to be able to work with you a little bit more. So you have a little bit more negotiating power. And this is the, the hard part that we alluded to earlier with net terms and, and the cash flow problems. If you're talking with a large retailer, listen, they have a lot of options. And if you're at the forefront of those options and they hit you with a, a line item, a variable that you didn't foresee, it's less likely that they're willing to pull that back because their systems, their processes are very streamlined and they go, hey, you either fit into this or you don't. And so you need to think through when you're getting started, I think it's very easy to say, I'm going to go get into Walgreens. And that's awesome. That's a fantastic long-term uh, goal. I think it makes a little bit more sense to look at, okay, where's the easier entry points? That's going to be higher volume in terms of the number of retailers I'm working with. This tends to be your more independent boutique retailers. Go find what works really well. Just because you got into a retail does not necessarily mean it's going to sell through correctly. So you need to really figure out and experiment what categories do, what types of retailers do well for us. If you're luxury, you're not going to go to a regular independent retailer. You're going to try to find a very tailored boutique and you're going to want to think through what SKUs do they currently have that complements my products? Does my product being in your store fit? Does it feel right or does it feel awkward? We need to think through that. So there's a lot more here than just get the account, right? This is where the relationship aspect really becomes important. So when we talk to a lot of brands and we ask them, hey, how are you currently finding new retailers? It's a lot of Google. It, it's right. not systematized. Right. And this is why a lot of brands will eventually build out a sales organization to say, hey, go get us accounts. Yep. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Every industry, every brand, every retailer is going to be slightly different. But I think it's important to really strategize and think through what is our brand? What type of retailer do we think we would do super well with, right? Where, where is that audience at? And then go and find those types of retailers. That's part of what we're trying to do here at Vendrive is my co-founder and I used to be online retailers. That's actually how we met. Okay. okay. And so we get the, fr the, the frustration, the friction of placing orders. Some orders, it's send us a fax. Some of it is you have to call us. And so mm -hmm. there's this whole issue where there's a variety of methods to operate as a retailer. And we were a small retailer, so I can't imagine being a massive retailer where there is no standardization. So one on the platform side, we're trying to make the, the standardization for the retailer and the brand much simpler. So for the mm -hmm. retailers, we have a unified checkout process. So you, if you're working with five brands on the platform, you could throw everything into one cart, we'll split it out. It's all good. But then it's not just making your current operations more seamless. It's also thinking through how do we grow that arm for you. So we do have a marketplace aspect. And what's interesting is there are marketplaces that exist, but nine times out of 10, we, we tend to see it where the retailer can find the brand, but the brand can never easily find the retailer. And that's an interesting gap in the market where you, if you're, again, if you're a smaller brand, you're actively having to pursue the retailers versus the retailers trying to pursue you once you have enough brand recognition. So how do you get that momentum rolling, that snowball? For us, it's being able to easily find these retailers, have conversations, begin testing in different markets, seeing what works and what doesn't. Have you got any customer stories on Vendrive of D2C operators who have just nailed this, the art of finding retailers to, for distribution or wholesale? Sure. Um, 
Not quite yet, because there's a range here, right? Again, it's hard to say it's one way, one method versus another strategy. Mm -hmm. Each one is different because of the industry. So mm. some brands do incredibly well going to trade shows. Yep. Just because that industry lends itself to, that's where it's really focused. So it's interesting. Every industry tends to evolve and adapt into its own kind of interesting, I guess, model is the term that comes to mind. So mm -hmm. pets is another great example. Tons of trade shows there. Fashion, mm -hmm. tons of trade shows. Trade shows. So each one is going to be slightly different. So it really depends on your brand and, and how that industry you know works. But again, you still have this problem where is that necessarily good moving forward? We, we think it should evolve. <laughs> we we yep. think it really shouldn't matter what the industry is. Pets should be just as innovative, just as modern as sports and outdoors tends right. to be. So we're hoping to get there over time. It's obviously going to take some time to get there, but <laughs> that's, that's really what we want is, is to reduce the friction of not just managing your current relationships and current business, but being able to grow as much as you want, that's like the ideal in business is being able to say, hey, we know where the demand is. It's really just up to us to see if we want to fulfill that demand. When it comes to B2B sourcing, what happens if something goes wrong with a product quality or the shipment gets delayed? With the trade assurance service from Alibaba.com, you can get compensated in the event that either product quality or dispatch date varies from what you and the supplier had agreed to. Enjoy greater peace of mind when you source on Alibaba.com with Trade Assurance. Learn more about Trade Assurance and other great tips at buyer.alibaba.com. So going back to the core of sourcing, from a supply chain standpoint, over the last year or so, we've seen some of the biggest supply chain breakdowns and um, you know, e-commerce at the same time has boomed. So sure. from your role at Vendrive, can you share what you've seen in the market, what you're seeing with your customers at Vendrive? Yeah, so we don't focus as much on the the supplier aspect, but we have had a mm -hmm. lot of conversations. Um, some brands foresaw everything coming and adapted quickly. Other brands have completely struggled and have had to adapt. I think mm -hmm. this is a very interesting thing. The adaptability is incredibly important, whether that's being able to find a different supplier in the same region or being able to go to a different region for a short period of time. So we have seen some some suppliers, or I'm sorry, some brands make those shifts and think through, maybe I don't need one supplier, maybe I need two suppliers who can fulfill this. That way, if there is a potential problem in the near future, we can quickly make that shift. So it's really, I think, a lot of the brands are thinking through, how do we hedge against this potentially happening? Yeah. But here's the upside of it. It really forced brands to think through how they operate. A lot of brands, even newer ones, to be frank, have gotten complacent and just normalized their current operations, their procedures, their SOPs. And that's fantastic, but I think it's been a good shock. A lot of the brands I've talked to, they're like, hey, it, it's been incredibly difficult, but it's really forced me <laughs> to think through things more deeply and really look at our potential blind spots and how we can you know, take a, a wider view of things and say, okay, let's go find each one of our blind spots, put a hedge in there, or at least try to pull it back where we can so that if something like this is to occur again, we're prepared for it as much as we can be. Because obviously you can never forecast the future, but you can mm -hmm. anticipate something you know, potentially happening. It's like the emergency fund, right? right? You don't save for a specific emergency. You just save for the potential of a emergency. Absolutely. And I think we're starting to see that as well. And a lot of brands, I think, were caught with not enough cash in the bank to, to deal with this situation, to weather the storm, right? A lot of brands, listen, 
being a physical products brand means having a capital intensive business. And so I think a lot of brands got caught being a little too adventurous with growth, if, if that makes right. sense. And there's nothing wrong with obviously reducing your profit margins to push more growth, but it's understanding that there's also a balance there as well. And experience is, is, is a great teacher. So, 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 yeah. so hopefully <laughs> with more supply chain redundancy built in, there'll be much more robust businesses moving forward. Exactly. Right. So e-commerce business, or shall I say business in general, is really about margins. You, you spend less and you sell more. Sure. What approaches do you take to increase efficiency? For example, utilize digital tools to capitalize trends or manage risk. I'd just like to you to shed some light from your best in class customers there and your experience as, a, as an online retailer prior. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm the operations dork. I think businesses should be as lean as possible. It's be as, make something as simple as possible, but no simpler. The brands that we talk to that seem to just have it figured out, they're just calm and like pure chaos in the world. They're just calm. Everything's doing well. They have things down perfectly. The way they operate, they can tell you exactly how they find retailers. They can tell you exactly how, where my price points break. They can tell you exactly that retailer has this thing, right? Like they're really on top of it and they're not treating B2B as a secondary thing. They're understanding that direct to consumer is fantastic, but B2B is right there next to it, right? Because both have amazing opportunities. Some brands that start doing direct to consumer eventually may go only wholesale and go only B2B. That's definitely an option. We see that from time to time. I think it's very easy to start adding headcount too soon. I think a lot of people, a lot of business owners say, hey, there's a lot here, just hire somebody. The issue with that is that you're not really thinking through the process itself. And I think that should come first. It's like trying to find efficiency before effectiveness. You mm -hmm. become efficiently ineffective. Mm -hmm. So we really want to think through, okay, like, not just go hire somebody to get retailers for us. How? Think through that. And sometimes as a business owner, you're like, I have no idea. I've never done it. <laughs> like, that's part of being a business owner. Like mm -hmm. most of my day is just trying to solve problems I've never even heard of before. But thinking it through first, using first principles, backing things out, making them simple. And then I think one, looking for a tool before you, you look for a person, I think can free up a lot of capital, right? Listen, hiring people is not necessarily cheap and there's nothing wrong with it. We have a team that are right here behind me and it's fantastic. But what we want to be is a lean team. We don't want to say, hey, we're going to hire somebody to take on pure chaos and just leave it as pure chaos. We want to say, let's hire somebody to take on a role, to take on a process that is so clearly defined that it's set up for success that the employee, the team member that comes on board is just ready to go and, and is going to crush it no matter what. So yeah, a lot of it comes down to getting clarity, right? It's taking the yeah. pure chaos. A lot of the brains we talk to when we start saying, Hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? And it's, ah, just figure it out in real time. I'm like, but you, you do it every other day. There should be a process here. And so the brands that are able to scale efficiently, effectively understand that. And they have things written down there. There are countless brands that are two, three people. And they do big numbers. It's incredible. And I think that's the future, right? I, I think Absolutely. we used to have this assumption that to be a big company, you have to have a lot of people. And it's not necessarily the case. Yeah, it's always thinking through what's the leanest way to do this? What's the most effective and then the most efficient way to do this? Yeah. And that comes down to every aspect of your business. I fundamentally believe that every business is a collection of systems, mm -hmm. right? So 
if, if you look at the three pillars we talked about, pricing, that can be a, a system for you in terms of how when to apply a certain price break versus not, right? The actual systems, which is, you know, meta now, <laughs> but how you find retailers. If you understand that if we do four hours of this type of task, we can yield one new retail that matches our amazing criteria. Great. Now go spend eight and you should get two. And so when we can think about it from that way, a lot of the chaos, a lot of the anxiety tends to go away. And then it's really just the math of it. It's really just Absolutely. what numbers do we want to do? Reverse engineer that back to what we need to get done today and move forward. Yeah, really love your point on efficiency and effectiveness. Yeah. And it's really down to to, to systems, automation, and, and, and then potentially you plug people in after you sort exactly. that out. Yeah. So based on, on what you've seen in 2020, I actually asked somebody earlier today this question. So based on what you've seen in 2020 and 2021, what should small businesses and B2B buyers be thinking about going forward in 2022? Yeah. Competition comes to mind. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of brands and companies created at the peak of COVID. And they were forced to create a business with a lot of limitations. Those limitations, in my opinion, became their strong suits. Smaller businesses, yes, you're still going to have an uphill battle, but you need to understand the changing environment. So there's a lot of innovation coming into the B2B space. And that's amazing. I've been wanting this for 10 plus years and it's finally <laughs> occurring and we get to you know partake in it, which is fantastic. So I think it's understanding that there's a segment of B2B that is going to operate old school and you're going to have to just deal with that to a certain degree for a period of time. Mm -hmm. But number two, there's a, there's the other inverse segment that is really cutting edge. That is really thinking about things differently. And you need to make a bet for the long term while also being aware of current reality. So that means understanding what platforms to be a part of. That means understanding how you structure certain things, right? Every company, no matter what you do in my mind is a software company. And I don't mean that you write code. I mean that a lot of your systems are software based. They talk mm. to one another, right? They should be integrated. A lot of the brands we talk to when they receive a wholesale order, they manually take that. If they take it over the phone, they write it on a sticky note, jump into QuickBooks, manually create that. And there's a whole bunch of manual work that doesn't need to occur. So it's thinking through that. It's really just saying, okay, we've been doing it this way for however many years. If we were to rebuild it today, what would that look like? And maybe you should rebuild it. But you also have an interesting dynamic that we're starting to see where very established brands are having younger generations coming into positions of power mm -hmm. and they're starting to question the status quo. They're starting to say, Sorry. hey, why do we have 13 people doing this one thing when a software could? And that's not to say that those people shouldn't be there. It's understanding that maybe there's a better task that humans could be doing right now to really make the, the operations more effective and more efficient. And so... You're starting to have a lot of very established brands in industries like pets starting to rethink how they're operating and jump into the new world, so to speak. So competition, it's fierce. Just because a, a brand is smaller than you doesn't mean that they can't compete with you. It's mm. not about size anymore. It's about agility. And what one person can build and do today is incredible with the right tools. And so it's something to think about. Interesting. More specifically, um, from an operations and sourcing standpoint, what are the lever points operators can can use for in twenty twenty two to to really sort of create that gap between them and competition? Yeah, 
it's a good question. It's a deep question because <laughs> I, mm. I think there's actually a lot there. Mm. So as logistics are getting back on track, and we're starting to see that, we're starting to see lead times compressed back down to normality, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Again, whenever you have a crisis, innovation tends to come as a second order effect. I think, excuse me, we'll start to see more types of shipping and logistics come into play. I think we'll start seeing new companies saying, hey, this broke and we don't think it was just because of COVID. We think it was a underlying assumption and we're going to craft an innovative solution and and come in and completely change the game. So my, my answer is not that you need to change something now. You might. But it depends on your unique situation and all that stuff, right? Where are you sourcing from, right, internationally? But looking at the landscape of innovation and looking what what right now might be cutting edge, but in the next two to three years might be considered a best practice. And if you're not doing that, you're really just missing out. Hmm. And this is business building 101, right? It's always thinking about the next step, what's going to occur in the next two years that if I can get in early enough and make that bet, that alone could set me up for success. It's thinking about that. That's to me, is very important. We're also starting to see your logistics becoming a little bit more transparent in the sense of a lot of the brands we've been talking to are not wanting to create their own warehousing or they're wanting to get rid of their internal warehousing and go to a 3PL, right? And why is that? Like your larger 3PLs, yeah, it costs more money, but they tend to be more integrated into other systems. (laughs) True, true. If you want to be super lean and you're like, hey, why do we need a, a team of 10 people doing this with, and we're going to hire somebody to build out that process as well, that system to tie into everything else, a custom integration, if you will. If you're not terribly large, where that's a legacy system, it might be worth you considering and looking at an actual 3PL because they're already built for the scale, right? So if you're like, hey, I really want to 3X, 4X, 5X our sell-through rate with B2B wholesale with direct-to-consumer, you might be able to transition over to a 3PL that can immediately upscale with you and be able to run the forecast out for the cost and say, hey, yeah, it's going to cost us more, but it's also going to enable us to be able to grow more quickly to and scale. not hit these problems. Exactly. And, and you make up for the margin loss of, okay. Exactly. Yeah, your head's right there. And a lot of your 3PLs will have decent relationships from my experience with good you know, facilities and manufacturers. Right. So if you're like, hey, we need a, a larger manufacturer internationally, they might be able to make that, that, that introduction yeah. Um, so it might be an unlocking move for you. Yeah. And, and a few 3PL providers are starting to, to go downstream with shipping services, with express shipping services, exactly. global shipping services, which makes it much more streamlined, I presume. Exactly. Okay. A, a, a left field question here. So if you could go back in time and speak to your younger self who is getting into wholesale, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh man, that's a good one. <laughs> I honestly... In hindsight, I would have said, start working on Vendrive now <laughs> because <laughs> it, it's one of those things where, you know, I, as a very small retailer, I dealt with a lot of these inefficiencies and a lot of these problems. It was the amount of wasted time, even just for me was tremendous. And I was in school full-time and college full-time. So the amount of inefficiency that exists in the world across the board is incredible. And everybody's on their own journey. So, you know, we started a company and did all these things before we got here. But yeah, honestly, I think it would have been fantastic to have started this much earlier. I I think exactly at that point might've been a little too early for people, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, I think I would have started taking these problems more seriously and, and really taking ownership of them. Like we are now as a company right now, we're saying, Hey, 
we've talked with 300 plus brands. We understand the the problems and the fears, the anxieties, the issues, and we believe we have those solutions and can find more as we iterate and, and improve the product. But it, it would have been awesome back in the day to think through that lens and be like, hey, okay, right. let me talk more with the, the the brands that I have relationships with because a lot of my experience is really from the retailer side, not the brand side. So we right. had a lot to learn. I mean, that's what we've been spending the last you know handful of years doing is really just deep diving and figuring it out and saying, hey, this was super painful for us. What about you guys? And they're like, huh. Yeah. If you think it's painful for you, you have no idea. <laughs> so yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. My takeaway is systematize your, your wholesaling as early as possible. Your pricing, your inventory, the way you handle payments, finding retailers, just systematize it from the get-go as quickly as possible. Dylan, it's been fantastic having you on, on the podcast. Um, where can we find out more about you and Vendrive online? Sure. Yeah. So if you're, if you're a brand wanting to go, you know, get started with B2B wholesale, or if you're an established brand and you already have relationships and, and you've been doing B2B for a handful of years and you want to streamline, definitely come check us out at vendrive.com. We, we don't cost money to jump in. We don't charge commission. Um, you know, we, we try to make it super simple and the, and the way we operate is, you know, whether you brought the relationship onto the platform or we helped you form it, it's your relationship at the end of the day. We just want to help facilitate it. So yeah, come check us out there. You know, we'll, we'll be spinning up a lot more content and, and hopefully launching a new podcast at some point. So uh, we'll be geeking out on the B2B side here shortly. We love to, to follow you. And, you know, thank you again um, for joining us on the Alibaba Sourcing Insights podcast. Cheers. Alibaba.com Sourcing Insights is the official podcast from the Alibaba.com team. Each week on the show, we bring you conversations with industry-leading experts who are using Alibaba.com to build and scale their businesses. These conversations help you explore opportunities through digital global sourcing amidst changing times and find diversified winning products and leading suppliers on Alibaba.com. Subscribe and be sure to check back for regular episodes.